Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle and Special Guest Patrick Connolly, Certified Financial Planner at Chase Devere. There have been a number of surprises over the past three weeks and one of the latest was yesterday's decision by the Bank of England not to cut interest rates as had been widely predicted but to continue to hold them at the current level of 0.5%. Even without a cut, interest rates and cash returns are very low. So Pat, is there anything investors can do to boost the returns on the low-risk sections of their portfolios? I think the starting point is to appreciate that we are, and we have for some time, been in a low interest rate environment. And it certainly seems that's not going to change for some times as well. So I think the starting point is to make sure people have their expectations set. Gone are the days where you're going to get 5 or 6% income with, with taking minimal risk. The income levels now are much lower. And if you want to achieve a higher level of income, you have to accept you need to be taking more risks. Now, a lot of people suggest that one way to go up the risk curve is to go into equity income at times like these. Now, this is a lot less racy than some sections of the equity market. But the point is, it's equity Mm. and it still falls in volatility like we've had recently and may continue to have. So... If you deciding, weighing up what to do, what's the minimum risk profile or tolerance that you need to have to invest in equity income? It really does depend and vary from person to person. I mean, most income investors tend to be fairly cautious. And so they probably wouldn't want all of their money invested in equities. And so, and so the approach that we would take would be, yes, we'd include equity income, not just UK, but also global equity income. We would also include fixed interest. And despite all of the recent uh, developments in, in, in client portfolios, we'd also have an allocation to property as well. Okay. Now, I suppose we've been maybe looking at the negative effects of low rates, but um, this decision to hold things where they are, does it benefit any type of assets? I, I guess the answer would be savings accounts, but but then savings accounts mostly are paying next to nothing anyway, so, mm. so the difference is, is, is marginal. In terms of other asset classes, it's difficult to have a direct link between interest rates and equity performance and fixed interest in performance. We, we saw yesterday when there was the expectation that interest rates were going to be cut, the equity markets rose. That's based on sentiment. It's based on expectation. And similarly with the fixed interest market, they make expectations in terms of where they think interest rates are, are going to move. And so... Both equity and fixed interest markets will move more or less depending on whether those expectations are met more than actually whether there's a movement or not. Now, you've mentioned fixed interest a couple of times. Are there, you know, for, for, for that area, obviously some of it's very low, like mm-hmm. gilts. So, I mean, what kind of funds should investors be looking at? It's a good question. I mean, for many years now, or it seems like many years, certainly a handful of years, people have been saying that fixed interest is expensive and there are far more risks on the downside. And yet it keeps producing positive returns. And, and we keep seeing the yields on gilts and, and other fixed interest instruments um, re- reducing all of the time. So it's difficult to sit here and, and say that fixed interest offers value, but it would have been difficult to do that a few years ago. In terms of where to invest, I couldn't sit here and say that uh, government bonds are out going to perform outperform corporate bonds or high yields. It's really difficult to make those decisions. And so the funds that we tend to use in, in our, on our client portfolios are strategic bond funds, those where the manager has the flexibility to move around different instruments because we want to hold fixed interest in our client portfolios because they provide protection and some security alongside equities. But it's, uh, with, with areas looking very expensive, 
you also need to be aware of the risk you're taking there as well. And, and we would rather hand those decisions over to managers that we trust to make, to make them. Okay. Which um, strategic bond funds do you particularly like? There are a few that we like. Um, I mean, we like the Jupiter Strategic Bond is one we use. The Henderson Strategic Bond is another. Um, Kames Strategic Bond is another. We, we try to look for managers who are doing different things. What we don't want to do is, in a client portfolio, invest in three strategic bond funds where the managers all have a fairly similar yeah. approach. And so with Henderson, for example, there may be more in high yield. With Kames, probably the other way around and, 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 and less in that area. And, and Jupiter is certainly fully fully flexible fund as well so the three together tend to work pretty well okay no change might suggest that for investors it's business as usual but there's still a possibility rates mm. might be cut in august and perhaps again later this mm. year so should you do anything to your portfolio to prepare it's really difficult. I mean, for the last seven years, there has been a general expectation, almost 100%, that the next movement in interest rates was going to be upwards. It's just a case of when it was going to happen, and it was moved back and back and when it was going to happen. And suddenly, and now we're, the expectation is, is, is they'll come down. And again, there's a lot of consensus behind that. And it's easy to follow the crowd and easy to think, yeah, that, that is what's going to happen. I don't understand why people are still making interest rate predictions because it's <laughs> proved, it's proved it to be incredibly, incredibly difficult. So I, I think on that basis, it's also difficult to manoeuvre your portfolio based on that, especially as the Bank of England haven't really got much to play with. I mean, interest rates are currently only half a percent. Carney has said he's not looking to move into negative interest rates. And so on that basis, the maximum cut has to be only half a percent. Well, some, some useful points. Um, I suppose otherwise we'll just have to wait and see what happens in August. Now, talking of income-bearing investments, last week a number of commercial property funds suspended investors from taking out or putting money in after a deluge of withdrawal requests in the wake of the vote to leave the European Union. As well as raising questions about the prospects for commercial property, it's also raised questions about how suitable open-ended funds are for getting exposure to this asset. Pat, do you think open-ended funds are still a viable way for investors to put their money into commercial property? Open-ended funds are not perfect, but I think they are still probably the best solution. Um, the starting point is you have to realise that commercial property is an illiquid asset. It isn't easy. It, if, if, if you look at your own house, your own property you, you may own, that's an illiquid asset. You think of the size and scope of somebody's commercial properties, that's far more illiquid as well. And, and so if you're investing into it, you need to be taking a long-term perspective. You should not be looking at short-term tactical trades that some people might do with equities, for example, but commercial property is, is, is a completely different game and so investors need a completely different mindset. We only invest in com bricks and mortar commercial property in open-ended funds. The reason for that is with closed-ended funds, they are listed on the stock markets mm. and they tend to have far more correlation with the markets as well. They'll go up and down with market movements. Now, the reason that we invest in commercial property, the two reasons, one is for income. And two is for diversification benefits alongside equities and fixed interests in particular. Now, if you're looking at property investment trusts, if you're looking at REITs, they tend to be more highly correlated to equities, which defeats one of the major purposes of, of us holding them in the first place. Yeah. Talking of the virtues of commercial property in view of what's happened, should you still have it in your portfolio at the moment? 
Um, if you've got it, it's probably difficult to get out of it. Yeah. Fairness, well, but. like, let's say you're not, like, well, <laughs> you're not in one of his poor investors who's gated into a fund. Uh, if you have the option of, um, you know, adding or, or, or being out, you know, um, is this a relevant addition to portfolios at the moment? We include commercial property in, in our client portfolios, typically anywhere from 5% to 12% of a portfolio. So in terms of liquidity of the overall portfolio, it's not a huge issue. Mm. You can argue at any given moment that there, there have been plenty of times that equity markets have, have suffered major losses and have been in the doldrums. You could turn around and say, well, should you be invested in equities on the basis that they perform so badly? Property is, is an asset that will have times when it performs well and times when it performs badly. And we saw what happened in 2007, 2008, which, which is a sort of similar time to where we mm. are now in, in terms of um, managers suspending trading. This will ride its way through. How long it takes? I don't know. How much property funds may fall in the meantime, I don't know that either. But if you're taking a long-term perspective, which you should be if you're in commercial property and you sit tight, then this should, over the course of time, work its way through. The problem comes whether it's when equity markets have performed badly or now with property, will people panic and sell out at the wrong time? What would you say? What are the kind of virtues of having it at this moment in time? You know, what does it? You know, what does it do? For yeah, the, 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 the properties, d- despite mm. everything that's going on, mm. the properties are still there. The tenants are sitting in the property still mm. there. The tenants are still there paying their rent. All of that is 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 happening. What we've had here is a lot of negative sentiment in the run up to the EU referendum. Mm. Uh, people were drawing their positions for fear of, of what might happen if if the vote was to leave. And then since then, we've had further withdrawals as well, which creates a big problem for property managers because. Because if they're paying withdrawals, they either do that from cash or selling property shares, which they can do, uh, and most of them have had a fair liquidity buff- buffer before, or they get to the stage where they may be forced to sell properties. Now, if you're having a fire sale of a big commercial property and you're trying to sell it over a short period of time, that's incredibly difficult and you're not going to get a good price. Mm. And so the reason why the companies have suspended trading is to protect the interest of existing longer-term investors. And, and so I and we w- would agree entirely with that approach. We've been talking about the issues with the different kinds of funds, and it seems that no fund is an ideal way into commercial property. Mm-hmm. So can, if you're a small private investor, is there any other way than a fund or an investment just to get into property? Well, unless you're going to buy a single property, which for, for most mm. people won't be realistic in terms of the cost, yeah. um, you, you can get access to commercial property in multi-asset funds and you mm. can get a bit of access there. Although, in fairness, most multi-asset funds only have a small proportion in, in property anyway. Yeah. And, and so the best approach and, and the approach that we take is to include it within an overall portfolio. But actually, you need to limit the amount. You wouldn't want 50% mm. of a portfolio sitting in property because yeah. then your own personal liquidity becomes an issue. From our perspective, where we've got 5% to 12%, if people need to get their hands on some money, the fact that yeah. the property funds are have ceased or suspended trading mm. actually is, isn't a huge concern for them. Okay, so collective funds, but not too many of them. <laughs> Just um, we, obviously, we've been talking quite a bit about income. What would you say, um, you know, are other areas for income at the moment well the, the main areas and, and, and the main ones we would use would would be um, equities both uk and global fixed interest yes cash for for a part but paying next to nothing property yes i i, I think one area that is going to develop over the course of time is is the absolute return side mm. now the, the, it's as, not typically associated income it's is it? not no. not at all not at all no i i think the only fund out there might be the aviva fund mm. but but i've i've heard murmurs and rumors that there, there may be other 
companies who are looking to launch in conversions. And it makes sense because if people are looking at absolute return now, which many people will do because they'll be looking for security in their portfolios, they may not trust fixed interest where it is. They probably don't trust property today. Absolute return fills a place there. But if they need income as well, why, why wouldn't you have something that combines the two? Now, it's... A challenge because a lot of the underlying investments you might hold in an absolute return fund aren't income generating, but there are ways and means around it. And Aviva have done that. Mm. And I would be surprised if others don't follow suit in the short term. And that might possibly open another option for people to diversify their portfolio and still get a reasonable level of income. Okay. And I suppose there are a number of um, bond or indeed you'd think, um, absolute return funds. So maybe it's not that impossible. Yeah. But even, even yeah. When, where you're using derivatives and, and, mm. and the like, even though they wouldn't naturally produce income, there, there are ways and means. I mean, Viva have done it. And as I said, I would not be at all surprised if in the coming months we, we see other providers doing something similar. Yeah. I, I suppose you could say that funds like the Schroeder Income Maximizer are already using derivatives to yeah. Yeah. generate income. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. But interesting. So um, I guess, yeah, watch the space. Mm. Now, the UK's vote to leave the European Union has had dramatic consequences for a number of investment areas other than commercial property. And these include exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short. In this case, so the consequences haven't necessarily been negative. Kate, you've been following the moves in the ETF market since the Brexit vote three weeks ago. What's been happening? Well, yeah, ETFs are very popular following, in terms of trading following Brexit. In fact, Brexit caused the biggest ever trading day for ETFs on the LSE um, on the 24th of June. So yeah, people have really been piling in, both buying and selling, and driving up the order books there, yeah. Okay. Which ETFs were popular then? Uh, so the iShares Core FTSE 100 has been massively popular, and in fact was the seventh most traded of all products on the London Stock Exchange for June. So that's that's massive. I mean, ETFs have actually struggled to make it into the top 10 traded products on the LSE until now, but in June, they, they really made it in there. So it just goes to show how much people have been using them. And then gold ETFs have been used a lot, uh, but also short and leveraged, which we don't talk about a lot because they're quite complicated but they're mm. often used very tactically by particularly institutional investors to hedge bets one way or the other on movements of you know major indices okay and, and these short leverage are they a good idea for everyone no definitely not a good idea for everyone you can make pretty massive losses if you uh mm. if you know if you bet the wrong way it's essentially like you know multiplying your bet on a movement of the market so if you obviously if you go the wrong way then you can make enormous losses but they are used very tactically by big investors okay um why do investors turn to etfs in um, volatile markets well they're very um, there's a number of benefits i mean they're very low cost obviously and they're they're very liquid because i mean unlike the kind of funds we've just been mm. hearing about and um, the open-ended ones they trade on secondary markets so they're easy to get in and out of and with these massive trading volumes it's, it's very easy to get a very tight spread um when you buy and sell so that makes it quite appealing to make short-term trades i mean we wouldn't normally mm. you know recommend making very short-term trades but no. they are used by a wide range of investors both as long-term positions which are low cost and short-term positions um which you can make kind of short-term bets on the market okay pat um, do you use the etfs for your clients and do you think they're good instruments in current market conditions uh, they can be good we use them very rarely um they're ideal for tactical investors because you can deal real-time trading so you can buy and sell instantaneously which which, which is beneficial um, as kate says they're low cost as well and with an etf you haven't got to worry about 
underperformance. Also as well, you get access to a lot of different investment types and different asset classes, which would be really difficult to access elsewhere. Our position from Chase Devere's standing is is that we don't invest in esoteric areas. We wouldn't mm. invest in some of the areas Kate's been describing. We wouldn't invest in individual commodities or anything like that. Right. And we don't take tactical bets. Mm. And so where we use passive funds, we tend to be using them for mainstream core stock markets. Mm. Um, and for that, we, we tend to use trackers rather than ETFs. Part of that is logistical because the tracker funds are on and available on all of the main platforms we use. ETFs are not. Um, Mm. And so if we've got two instruments that are broadly doing the same job, it makes sense from an admin perspective for ourselves and our clients to have everything together rather than having a separate ETF away from that. But I, I can see for certain types of investors and certainly some of the institutional investors where where, where they could have a place. It's just they don't fit in with what we do. Mm. In terms of using tracks and passives, are there any particular markets you like to use them in? Typically large cap UK and US equities. Mm. Um, markets that are hard to beat. The, right? the, the, more yeah. effic- the more efficient markets, probably more in the US than, 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 anywhere, than anywhere else. But yeah, the, the more efficient markets. In, uh, in other areas, if you're looking at smaller companies, if you're looking at um, emerging markets or Far East or, or areas that perhaps are a little bit more inefficient, then we're hopeful, hopeful at least, that mm. an active manager would be able to outperform. Okay, some useful points. Thanks for that. That's all we've got time for this week. So it just remains to thank Patrick Connolly, Certified Financial Planner at Chase DeVere, and Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle. You can read more on commercial property investment trusts and ETF trading in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening. <laughs>